You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I would like to welcome you to this beautiful African-American department. So it gives me great pleasure to have um, Julie Saylor to introduce the speakers this evening. Oh, thank you. Um, Hello, I'm Julie Saylor, Library Associate in the Maryland Department of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us in the African-American Department of Central Library, and welcome to Writers Live. Um, we are thrilled to have Renee Katakalos and Reverend Heber Brown III talking about Renee's book, The Chesapeake Table, Your Guide to Eating Local. Um, Renee Brooks Katakalos is a former publisher of Edible Chesapeake Magazine and former deputy director for Future Harvest, Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture. She is now member and strategic partnerships manager for the National Organization Sustainable Agriculture and Food Systems Funders. She also serves as a member of the steering team for the Chesapeake Food Shed Network, a regional food systems initiative. Um, You can find her website at www.reneeeatslocal.com. Reverend Heber Brown III is the pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in North Baltimore. He works alongside a variety of community organizations that address issues such as homelessness, poverty, racism, workers' rights, environmental justice, peacemaking, and social justice concerns. He is founder of the Black Church Food Security Network, which brings together black churches and black farmers and helps Baltimore residents gain access to healthy food. So a little about Renee's book. She begins the book by describing her personal challenge to only buy, prepare, and eat food within a 150-mile radius of her home near Washington, D.C. Think about the foods you buy and where they come from. Food travels an average of 1,500 miles from farm to plate in America. If you purchased only food that was produced locally, what effect would this have on your food choices, your health, the environment, and the economy of your community? After the conversation, we'll have a question and answer period. Then there will be time to mingle and buy books from the Ivy Bookshop. We are podcasting this event. So during the Q&A, please wait for one of my colleagues to come to you with a microphone. Finally, I've brought a selection of cookbooks we have in our Maryland Department and the African American Department. I use many of these in a program I present on historic Maryland cookbooks called Maryland Cooking, Historic Cookbooks of the Old Line State. Feel free to take a look while you're in line for an autograph. You'll find many of these cookbooks use local Maryland ingredients. Again, thanks for coming. Please, let's welcome Renee Katakalos and Reverend Brown. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. And thanks for braving the weather and being out here with us. You know, this is, these are the times that remind me that um, farmers brave the weather all the time <laughs> to produce the food that, that we eat. So it's nice for us to share the weather with our, our local food producers, right? So, um, so I'm going to, we didn't really kind of determine exactly how we're going to do this, but I thought I will just tell you a little bit about Uh, how I came to write this book, and I would like to also use that to um, explain how I came to learn about 
um, Dr. Heber Brown and the Black Church Food Security Network and the work they do, and kind of how that all fits into things that are going on in the Chesapeake region right now around eating local. Um, and then um, and then have him talk about his work, and I've got some questions that I'd like to ask, and I'm sure y'all have some questions too. So um, again, so I'm, I'm Renee Brooks-Katakalos, and I live down in the, in, the, in the D.C. area, and I've been um, engaged in the local food community uh, throughout the Chesapeake Bay kind of region for the last about 15 years. Some of the things that were mentioned that I did there, I've, I've worked with farmers, I've written about the um, local food scene, I have really started in it just as a consumer, just as someone who is interested in um, exploring what was being grown locally, how much we really could source, whether it really was better tasting, healthier, and all of those kinds of things. Um, and I found that those things were true. Um, when, you, when you look at the book in the beginning, I, I start by looking at the, the reasons why it is important to think about eating local and supporting local food production. A lot of it for us has to do with our environment and the health of the Chesapeake Bay, which really defines our region. But I think one of the things that I um, found most interesting as I went along in this whole journey and that I feel has become more and more one of the reasons that people are engaging with the local food community lately is um, the sense of control and empowerment and self-determination that eating locally gives to people who do it. It's not just about supporting the farmers, although that's important. It's not just about the environment. That's important, too. It's uh, not just about our economy, but that is important, supporting the people circulating money in our own area, but it's also about ourselves and the choices that we can make, the, the informed choices that we can make when we are buying closer to home. Um, the degree to which we can know how the food was produced or ask someone questions if we want to know something about how to use it or if we feel like some sort of problem has happened, how quickly we can get back to the source of where we got that food um, so that we can, you know, uh, so that you don't get widespread food outbreaks, foodborne illness outbreaks and things like that. Um, so I was going to, um, uh, part of my learning through this process, um, especially in like kind of the last five years or so and on this kind of self-determination topic is that the, the topic of kind of food sovereignty and, um, um, you know, this, this idea of people having control over the choices they get to make has become more and more central to the conversation about regional food systems. And a lot of that has to do with people um, realizing how structurally flawed our food system is. The, we, we all kind of know that the national global industrial food system has a lot of problems, but the alternatives that have been started to set up in the local and regional um, systems, some of them are based on some of those same problems. Um, but we're in a position to kind of recognize those sooner and find ways to, to change those systems. And a lot of that has to do with the kind of original um, structural economics of this country that were based on expropriation of land from Native Americans and then, um, and then extraction of labor from enslaved Africans 
that have created a lot of the inequities that, it, that continue today in all parts of our system. But I think you can really see it in the food system because so much of it goes back to the land and who's been working the land and who's been growing the food, but then who actually ended up with the wealth out of that and with the ability to continue doing that as they wanted to. And hint, it wasn't the Native Americans or the blacks. So, so people are looking at those things now and looking at, well, how can we create you know, equity? How can we dismantle some of these things so that everybody can get involved in a more meaningful way? so that everyone can have uh, um, access, not just to the food, but to the means of growing it, or to being entrepreneurial within the system, or to just making the choices that they want to make about the food that they want to eat. So, um, so during, that, during that process, I, I, I was learning. I'm going to read a little, little excerpt from the book that just kind of puts into context. A lot of you may know this already. I really didn't know this when I started doing this research, um, but I'm just going to read this part. This is from the chapter on farms, and it's in a subpart of the chapter called Who Farms? Farms operated by African Americans are few and slowly decreasing in both states. In this case, I meant Maryland and Virginia. The history of black farmers in Maryland and Virginia follows the larger story of racial bias that almost wa wiped out black farmers in the 20th century. In 1920, more than half of blacks in America lived on farms, compared to about 25% of white Americans. And blacks represented 14% of all the nation's farmers. Many left the segregated South to pursue non-farming work in other parts of the country, some wanting to escape the stigma carried by the history of forced field work through enslavement and sharecropping. Those who did, not, those who did want to keep farming faced systemic racism in the USDA, the U U.S. Department of Agriculture, that excluded black farmers from the subsidy and loan programs that helped white farmers get through difficult times and scale up in the post-war era. A class action lawsuit against the USDA settled in 1999 provided some compensation to thousands of black farmers, but by then, many had lost their farms through foreclosures and other financial disasters. Today, African Americans make up barely 1% of farmers nationwide, and the land black farming families have lost may never be regained. So this is, this is the context in which um, you start to hear within regional food systems about even, um, even outside the mainstream of what we're seeing with farmers markets and CSAs, kind of parallel the parallel development of other systems within some of the communities that have been that that felt sort of left out of that first wave of um, local food enthusiasm. So you probably remember around maybe in 2010, 2011, as the farmers market craze was really kind of ramping up. There was a lot of money that I mean, it's not a lot in objective terms, but relatively, there was a lot of money that was going into local food promotion from the USDA that started coming out at that time, and that's when the the you know this kind of super uh, increase in farmers markets began. And then there started to be um, some charges of elitism about it. And you know the prices were high, and they were only in certain neighborhoods. And um, they were selling kinds of food that you know a lot of regular people didn't want to eat. And so there were these, these access issues around that. And, and, and that's a lot of what led to people looking for, well, what are other ways that everyone can participate in this system? So, 
The book that I've written deals a little bit with those issues. It deals generally, in the, in the very broad sense, with the um, increase in ways that we as consumers can access local and regional food and the, the benefits that that has for all of us and the work that a lot of people are doing to continue to increase that. But tonight I was just going to, I'm focusing a bit on some of these um, really intentional um, efforts within communities of color especially and things that have been going on here in Baltimore and um, that obviously you know, Heber has been at the forefront of. So I'm gonna read this. Uh, this is the, the sidebar that's in the book that is actually about um, the work that, that Pastor Brown has been doing here. It's called Faith Farms and Food Justice. Baltimore's Reverend Heber Brown III is a natural born preacher and he uses his talents to preach a particular message about food sovereignty in economically abandoned communities of color. As the young pastor found himself visiting many of his Pleasant Hope Baptist Church parishioners with diet-related illnesses in the hospital, he saw a need for education and action around healthier food. Reverend Brown walked the two blocks from his church to the Belvedere Square Market, where he found an abundance of beautiful produce and local food that was clearly out of reach financially for most of his congregation. He realized then that although his church was not in a so-called food desert, it was a food mirage. We can see what we need, but we can't grab it. To fix that, Reverend Brown transformed an empty lot owned by the church into a garden, growing produce for the congregation. For the first few years, they gave the produce away, then they started asking for donations, and now the produce is sold following church services. He's connected with local black farmers, such as Aaliyah Frazier of Dirt, Black Dirt Farm on Maryland's eastern shore, to bring in larger quantities of produce creating an ad hoc food distribution network in neighborhoods in crisis follow the, following the arrest and death of Freddie Gray in 2015. Ultimately, he decided to tap into the land holdings of black churches, the largest collective land holders in the black community, to foster the creation of the Black Church Food Security Network. The network addresses food security, personal health, social justice, economic self-sufficiency, and environmental justice through the deep roots of black church communities. With nine Baltimore churches actively growing their own food as well as supporting black-owned farms, a half dozen more preparing to launch programs in 2018, and interest growing up and down the eastern seaboard, Reverend Brown's message has clearly resonated as a model for community-owned change. We had all that we needed in the church to do what we needed to do, quoting him. So that we were just talking before this about how the minute you write something down and like publish it then it's like outdated so i know the numbers there about the numbers of churches that are involved in his work um, are low um, but what is prescient about this is that it, his, his work has been recognized as a model um, that can be uh, replicated in other places or like where there are lessons to be learned and in fact he's just been um, uh, received an Emerging Leaders Award from Philadelphia-based Cleneal Foundation, which, as he was just telling me, is really kind of a game changer for the network and will give them the, the financial support to kind of launch into a more national um, effort. So, so let me let you talk about where y'all are at right now. Yeah, I, well, let me just say first and foremost, thank you so much, uh, Renee, for including a piece of our story in this fabulous book. I mean, it's an amazing, very detailed, 
thoughtful book, and I'm grateful that our story is a part of that. I thank you for that. Um, the Black Church Food Security Network, as the passage shares, just works to better organize what African-American congregations already have in their possession. Yes, that connects to the material assets, land and classrooms, commercial kitchens or close to commercial kitchens um, and the like, but it also speaks to the deep relationships that are a part of these congregations as well and or that make up these congregations as well. And I found that to be just as, if not more important, than how many acres the church owns. It's, it's really how deep the roots of the, those relationships. Because to, to do sustainable food system work, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I, I was chuckling when I was reading in, in, uh, in the book. You were talking about how you were driving like 100 miles this way to get this and 75 miles that way to pick up that and like piecemealing your, your menu for your home. And I was chuckling, but I was grateful that you wrote that out so that people really get a sense of if we are serious about a more just food system, please don't think it's going to come by way of microwave. Just push a button and here you are. It's going to take people rolling up their sleeves and saying, I'm willing to go the extra mile in order to help bring about uh, the kind of food system that my family and my community deserves. So for us, those relationships are key because when you're going the extra mile, or like I was, I was driving to North Carolina last year picking up free-range eggs uh, because that's what I had to do to get the free-range eggs. And I would get like... 500 dozen eggs and drive them back on 95 and they'd be available at the church that Sunday but um, that's what had to be done and this year thankfully we have some younger people <laughs> who are on our team and they're the ones doing some of the driving and so they drove to Warfield, Virginia uh, just below Richmond and picked up strawberries and drove them back for one of our markets like that's 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 pretty hard work it's rewarding but it's not easy work. The relationships help to make the load just a little bit lighter when you know who you're doing it for and why you're doing it. And so the what, the what of the Black Church Food Security Network is important. We work with black churches and we help them to reimagine how they can utilize what they already own for community benefit, the land, the classrooms, et cetera. Uh, setting up soil to sanctuary, that's what we call it, soil to sanctuary markets inside of the church um, on Sundays. We tried Saturdays, but it was like, no, that's not where the base of your people are. Your base comes on Sundays, and if you have your market on Saturday at the church, then they're going to be less inclined to come on Saturday and then turn right around and come back to church on Sunday too. Bring the market to the people, and that's what we do, and that's an amazing experience having local farmers and producers and business owners there. Like All of that is amazing, and now traveling to Ohio. We have a cluster of churches, affiliated churches in the Columbus area and in Dayton, Ohio. Cleveland is now on my phone. I'm going back to organizing Cleveland. Um, and Greenville, North Carolina area. I just got an email yesterday from uh, Oklahoma City. So that's all the what of what we do. I'm a network weaver. 
I'm, I'm a pollinator. I'm flying back and forth. I'm showing people that by yourself, you can't do it. But working in partnership with others, you can make a tremendous difference in your community. And I'll just go and show people the big picture and help connect the dots. That's the what. But it's the why that really gives me goosebumps. And the why is connected to where you started, Renee, in terms of um, the self-determination, the, the food with dignity, um, the, the, the sense of pride that comes, um, the desire to connect with those who are growing the food. All of those are beautiful, and those are part of the why. And finally, I recognize the issues that we face right now are systemic with our food system. And I think you framed it beautifully in terms of just the, the legacy and the histories of land theft and exploitation of people. Those are systemic issues, the roots of which, and the, the tentacles of which, rather, still reach today and impact our food system. It's systemic. It's not based on any one individual. Individuals are born, and this is, this is a pastor talking, individuals are born and individuals die, and life just keeps on moving. It's the systems that really are, have the, the greater um, um, the strength to extend far beyond any of our individual lives. And so once I recognized that it was a systemic problem we were facing, I really wanted to be a part of creating a systemic solution for that systemic problem and one that honored the agency of the African-American community. And for me, very biased opinion, I'm a pastor, of course, I'm biased, but I'm hard-pressed to find any other sector of society where the African-American community enjoys the levels of autonomy, agency, history, culture, and the collection and organization of resources outside of the black church. It's a reason why this institution has existed since the late 1700s and black churches throughout all the racism, terrorism, depression, world wars. These institutions just keep on chugging along and so I wanted to plant a seed uh, in the bosom of that institution to give a greater likelihood that when it's my time to check on out of here and see what the next thing's gonna be that the work that I've done has a greater chance of extending far beyond my lifetime because it's planted in an institution that has proven to have staying power. So clearly you've had a lot of positive response from pastors around, around the country, really. Um, you know, why, why did nobody think of this before? <laughs> So, you know what, here's the interesting thing that I was dumbfounded to find out. People did think of this before. It got buried somehow in the narrative around food and even buried in the dominant narrative of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So for example, the role of black farmers during the civil rights movement has been so buried in history that we think that all the civil rights movement was was marching and preachers. But without black farmers who were land owners putting their land up to advance the cause of civil rights, you would not have had a civil rights movement the way that, that we remember and experience it. So those histories are there, but chances are, if I say raise your hand, if you can name the black farmers who were a part of the civil rights movement, none of us could raise our hand. We weren't given that version of history in school. 
We weren't told about, for instance, today at the, the, at the time of this uh, podcast and recording, um, it is the 108th anniversary of the birth of Reverend Albert Clegg Jr. In the 1960s, he was saying that rural African Americans should connect with urban African Americans and create a food system that pipelines food from the South into the cities and then moves financial resource into the rural community. He said this in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's amazing that these ideas existed. Reverend Vernon Johns is another one around the Farmville, Virginia area. He was saying the same thing. Yeah. So it's amazing how those stories have been buried in the civil rights movement narratives. But so when I found them, I'm excited that somebody else thought of it. I'm energized that I can, since I don't have to think of it, I can just try to flesh it out. Right. What does it look like in our time? Um, seasoning, it, seasoning it with, of course, you know, some of the realities of today's time. But yeah, the basic blueprint was established some time ago. And I mean, there was also certainly a larger narrative in the country in general about, um, I mean, this is kind of new, this lionizing of farmers anyway right now and the um, the glamour kind of that came with the local food movement and all although by the time that came along there weren't many black farmers left to be part of that glamour but um, but there are a lot of young people in the black community interested in farming and folks who are looking for ways to do that um, you know across the board young farmers are are facing the challenge of finding land to farm on, and in our region, it's definitely an expensive proposition to find land if you don't have it in your family. And this is what makes kind of the whole the whole history of, of black land loss even more poignant. That you know now there's so little land left in, in the hands of families for 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 farmers to get on. Um, do you see any? How, how what what effect do you see the the Black Church Food Security Network having on farmers, the farmers who who are out there working? I guess on family lands, are some of them coming in and working on church lands? How's that interacting? It's an exciting time. There's a growing movement of uh, faith communities, uh, pastors, churches, synagogues, uh, mosques. They're seeing their lands uh, as potential assets to beginner farmers and young farmers. And so some of that matchmaking is just beginning to happen. So by the time you write your next book, I mean, it's going to be an amazing chapter on what is happening there because um, that is beginning to happen. I mean, churches, churches are experiencing a shift in how people are connecting um, with them. And so, like, the church attendance, for example, of, like, your grandparents' time, regular church attendance was, like, every single Sunday, the demographic has shifted. The, the numbers, the stats, everything is shifting. So now regular attendance is more like once or twice a month. That has, that has implications for the rest of the ministry. And so churches are rethinking, being forced to rethink how they show up. So it's fortuitous that as they're rethinking how to utilize their land and their buildings, you got this growing number of mm-hmm. young and beginner farmers saying we need land. So some matchmaking is happening there on that front. And finally, on the other side of that, in terms of supporting those farmers who do have land or leasing land or the like, what I see with the Black Church Food Security Network is we're able to be a community of support to those farmers that as they face various challenges, 
Um, and they're already low-resource farmers. They're already tr struggling to find markets. They're, if they're at a farmer's market, many of them are frustrated because you know, a lot of them are not even breaking even. They'll sit at a farmer's market for six hours and not even break even at the end of the day. And so what we're able to do with the Black Church Food Security Network is be that like cocoon of support around them. So for instance, us driving to Virginia and North Carolina to pick up produce from these farmers is one less thing they have to think about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and our community, mobilizing the assets and resources of and the people power of local congregations helps to make it easier for them um, I want to see the day, and we've not gotten here yet, but I'm, I'm leaning. I want to see the day where farmers are on payroll at local churches, hmm. that we can help stabilize the, the income of local farmers, that we help to buy farm equipment, mm -hmm. put that on the church budget. There's so much that is on the church budget now that it can be moved. Right. And so right. let's buy the tractor. Right. Let, let's buy the cold storage unit. Let's partner and not just, not just hope somebody else figures out how to make a more just food system, but get some skin in the game, invest, and make it work and do your share. That's an interesting point because one of the things that is really driving the growth of local food right now um, and, the, and regional, the regional food system is what's called farm-to-institution buying. And generally, institutions, people think of them as um, you know, hospitals, schools, universities, libraries, governments. Um, but I don't hear people talking about churches in that same way, and it is, in fact, a, an institution and a network of institutions that could function in the same way. But, um, you know, this is, this is one of the things that's happening. Um, the growth of farmer's markets has slowed now. It's kind of leveled out, you know, um, and some people ask, I, I had someone call me to do an interview the other week who was like, does this mean the end of the local food system? I'm like, well, no. Um, but it just means that we're finding equilibrium around one particular channel of local food access. And, what, and, and that's, that's going to be like a finite number of people who are going to go that extra mile to get to the farmer's market on the weekend or who even have one that's convenient for them or whatever. And there also are farmers for whom that model doesn't work for them. So we got to have other ways of getting it in greater circulation um, and just creating a system that is not, not all of it's going to be direct cons to consumer, but still if it's locally produced and grown and bought by local organizations and um, distributors and things like that, we're still supporting that regional economy of food production, you know, that used to run our, our areas anyway. So, um, so it's, really, it's really exciting to see new channels like this and new ways of thinking about how can we continue to create pipelines for the um, for for locally produced food into you know institutions that can that can afford to buy it so yeah 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 so I, how are we on time I don't I'm not really watching okay okay so um, tell us a little bit about the plans that you know this emerging leaders award is are gonna you know make possible for for you guys so yeah we're, we're just super jazzed about this and grateful for the Clinell Foundation and their support. Um, let me say briefly that for us, because agency and dignity factor so prominently in our organization and work, 
and because we're so sensitive to the power dynamics that can sometimes come into play when you have community organizations being funded by foundations, we take a very uh, slow go approach when it comes to working with foundations. In fact, there are some that we have turned away and said, we're not a good fit. There's another group that probably could benefit from that money. God bless y'all. Go find them. Because we feel like the strongest position we have is the autonomy. And think, think about it this way, too. Especially in the context of Baltimore, majority African-American city with so many people, black folk in particular, struggle poverty and education and jobs, et cetera. The black church is the one place where when you walk in, no matter what your job is or your circumstances are outside that door, when you walk in, you are bathed in a love and a respect and a dignity. And so you might be the janitor at the hospital, but when you get to the church, you're Deacon John and you are respected in that congregation. We feel like that kind of stuff is so valuable that we're not willing just to toss it away for a grant, right? And so we work very slowly with foundations toward that end. And so the, we work, there's three foundations. The Town Creek Foundation is one. Um, the second one is New Visions Foundation, which is, it helps to fund uh, um, just alternative visions of what the future can be. And then now Clinil Foundation. We interviewed them just as much as they interviewed us. We were at the table trying to negotiate, okay, where are your politics? How do you view the world? What's your theory of change? That kind of thing. And so we're grateful to partner now with the Clinell Foundation, which will mean um, $240,000 over a four-year period, unrestricted general operating expenses, and $10,000 of professional development funds for me to keep learning and growing and, and being stretched. Um, what that means now, oh. <laughs> so we have big dreams. <laughs> um, we, want, we see an ecosystem. We see the black church having, helping to give birth to an ecosystem that can help to advance food sovereignty, but also address issues of climate change, also can help establish a pipeline for um, people who want a career change or young folks coming out of college who want to really see what it's like to get involved in the food system in some way. And maybe they farm, maybe they don't. But I'm trying to teach younger people in particular that you can get engaged in the food system and not spend one day with your hands in soil. So specifically what it means is we're in a position to help support local organizers in their city. I'm not trying to fly in and be like the savior and like the messiah to every community uh, in the nation. These communities already have the heroes they need. But we're in a position now to be win to the sales of those organizers. And those organizers can look like young, frontline, marching, 20-something-year-old Black Lives Matter activists. And those organizers also can look like Sister Patsy Appleberry in Dayton, Ohio, 70-something years old, who knows everybody. And in her church, if you want to get something done, you talk to Sister Patsy Appleberry. You put support behind a Patsy Appleberry, uh, she's going to make sure that those resources get to where they need to go, and she's going to get it done because she's not doing it to make money and get rich and prestige anyway. I have to pull teeth just to get her picture of her to put on the Facebook. She's like, don't put my face on that Facebook. I don't want to be on that Facebook. <laughs> but, 
these are the heroes, and these are oftentimes, as you know, Renee, they're not necessarily, and I'm talking about African-American elders now, they're not necessarily the people that you see on the stage at conferences, at food justice uh, events. But before food system work was a thing, my big mama was the food system advocate in my family, Uh, Mama Geraldine. Uh, Mama Geraldine was the one whose fridge, uh, and I'm talking about your big mamas too and your grandmamas too, who you look in their refrigerator and you see almond hammer and bologna. They look in there and they pull a feast out of that bad boy and y'all eating all week long. I want to be a part of helping to better recognize and place spotlight on the wisdom and the genius of our elders and our ancestors who figured so much of this stuff out. And now to be in a position where we can put financial resource behind them, oh, I feel so privileged about that. And so putting support there to local organizers in their communities, hosting events, doing presentations, um, helping to establish soil to sanctuary markets in other churches and other communities around the country, connecting churches and farmers, paying these farmers up front, um, all of that is what we'll be able to do. And let me say finally, when I talk about the ecosystem, every synagogue, every church, every mosque, every faith community, food features prominently somewhere in this grand scheme of things of their religion. For us in the church, food is amongst the top three of our expenditures. Yeah, staff, uh, maintenance of the building, and food. We eat, and y'all eat. If you think about your religious upbringing and whatever faith community you might have been a part of uh, or visited, food is there somewhere in the picture. Somebody's born, you eat. Somebody's dying, you eat. Somebody's getting married, you eat. Food is somewhere. Communion, Eucharist, you eat. Food is a, is a deeply spiritual thing. And so in terms of like longer down, down the road of where we're going, we want to get to the place, and this is like late breaking news, y'all, and just right. because it's just us, I'm going to tell you You heard it y'all. here first. It yeah. is going to be podcast. Listen, it's coming. <laughs> podcast people, y'all keep it to yourselves too. <laughs> but we want to get to the place where communion bread comes from farmers. Wow. Where that little cup of grape juice that we drink during Eucharist or during communion is provided by a local farmer. Right now, That's the, the faith yeah. communities right now, we're just buying the kit from online somewhere. We just want to get the job done because communion or Eucharist is coming up and we got to get to the table. I'm pushing faith leaders now to think deeply. What does it say, for the Christian sense, what does it say that you're saying that this bread and this cup is the body of Christ and the conditions under which it was produced were not fair to the workers? You're saying that's the body of Christ and it was grown under conditions where people aren't being paid a living wage and not being treated with dignity. You're saying that's the body of Christ when the land that produced it is not being honored and pesticides and chemicals are being sprayed all over the land. You can't tell me that's the body of Christ. So now we're pushing pastors and partnering with farmers to dream What would it look like to resource faith communities in such a way that they can make purchases that align with their religious and spiritual values and honor local farmers and producers at the same time? That feels and sounds more spiritual to me. Wow. (laughs) Wow. And, you know, that really speaks to the strength of looking at food as a local or regional resource because you can make that happen 
on a church-by-church -church basis, but by distributing that power among all of those churches and then bringing it together collectively, you know, you're all moving in the same direction, then you have the, the power to get those larger kind of systems to change uh, around. So that is an amazing way to use the power that is within, you know, within your community. So I, I applaud that. That's amazing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So um, let's see if, if there are any questions. Anyone has questions? Yeah. Good evening. I am Pastor Brenda White, pastor of Allen A&E Church in West Baltimore. And we are certainly hoping that the network can find its way west to us over, over, in, ba over in West Baltimore. Um, then secondly, I would proffer that we have more land in our churches than we think that we have, because culturally, as a people, we don't tend to tell what we have. And many of our congregations, we have people in our congregation who got land back home. Mm -hmm. And the land is just sitting. So it's a matter of communicating with them in a comfortable space that allows them to say, oh, yeah, we got that, because right. it is there. Right. So, and I want to thank each of you, and I am going to get my copy uh, today as well, but I am looking to bring what you are already doing uh, to West Baltimore in the Poppleton community where Allen Baltimore is there serving. Thank you. Great, great. And, you know, I, I think it also and, uh, just speaks to how you said something about people can be involved in the local food community or the local food, you know, action without ever putting their hands in the dirt. And, you know, this is, this is a, a thing, too. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I run into any other um, pastors or faith leaders, you know, certainly not many in the um, food system circles that I move in and all, and uh, I think it was really visionary for you to just kind of step into that and somehow make the, the amazing connections that you've made to the food community through, you know, the, the faith community. It's, it's, it's definitely really visionary. Uh, yeah. Anybody else? Good evening. I'm, I'm interested in the, the um, you've been talking a lot about the production end. I'm interested in, and you mentioned classrooms about teaching people how to eat like that again. Um, I know my church ran a food pantry and it was very difficult because many of the younger mothers particularly, they didn't know how to cook that food. Mm -hmm. They didn't know how to cook raw greens. Mm -hmm. They didn't, you know, we, we raised a generation of young people on processed food. Right. And so we gotta turn that around as well. Right. So I didn't know if the network has, or, or your work has some um, thoughts around that direction as well. Well, I will just say that it's definitely recognized as a as a, a problem that there there is kind of a lost generation of people who are not um, comfortable working with kind of the raw ingredients of food um, and don't necessarily have that the, the techniques for for cooking that or even for storing it. Um, this is this is a perennial. Um, issue that you hear of people signing up for things like a community supported agriculture box share CSA you know they get the food and then they don't know what to do with it or they can't eat it fast enough and you know th so there's some some tips here in, in the book where I mentioned I was doing a talk once when I was publishing edible Chesapeake and someone in the audience said I, I know I know how to cook frozen kale but what do I do with raw kale 
with fresh, you know, and it's kind of like never occurred to them. I mean, do the same thing, (laughs) cook it. Um, But also um, having a lot of greens in a box, a lot of people don't realize that you can just cook them all and freeze them. You know, the freezer is, is like the best friend of someone who's trying to eat local these days. I mean, people think about canning and putting things up, which is certainly a way to do it. But the freezer is the easiest way there is. And, you know, I grew up with my mother can always pull a bag of greens out of a freezer for any of those occasions that come up and, you know, you caught off guard or whatever. There's always some greens that can be thawed out and they're ready to go. So um, there, there are organizations, you know, working in this in this area who are doing a lot around um, cooking classes or food education, nutrition education. Um, A lot of the government agencies that work with nutrition programs also are doing that kind of education. But I think there's still a lot more, and a lot of it is incumbent on those of us who do know how to do it to be sharing those meals with people and having them come over and, you know, telling them that we cook this and and sharing our recipes and our, our ways of doing things. For, for us, um, at our soil to, sanctu- soil to Sanctuary markets, there's a workshop or a class going on in the church kitchen while the market is happening. And so we recognize the same thing that you said. And Sister Minnie Little, shout out to Sister Minnie, she's been the kitchen director at Pleasant Hope for 30 years. And it's been my pleasure to be an intergenerational bridge between her and the young adults of our church. And so while the market is happening, She's in there teaching them how to season Cornish hens or how to, how to make greens. We also host a number of food and faith Bible studies throughout the year where uh, we study scripture together and a meal is cooked by a local chef and then we talk about the health properties of that food and then we eat it together and share in the meal. I'll say finally that this September, out of some out of sensitivity of what you sh- share to a degree, we're launching a dinner church at our church later this year. First Sunday in September will be the launch of our dinner church, Be More Dinner Church, where the, um, the worship will revolve around meeting in the kitchen, mm. preparing a meal to d- together, cooking together, eating together, and then weaving song and scripture and sharing throughout the night as we are moving from the kitchen to the table. Uh, where we're located is, is near like York Road and Northern Parkway. In a five-mile radius of that area, you have 55-some thousand undergraduate students between August and May every year. Mm-hmm. And so for many of them, the whole cooking issue is a thing. And also, they're looking for community. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them are here away from, away from home or what have you. And so bringing people to the kitchen is, is uh, a thing that we're really excited by. And finally, we invited the Muslim sisters from Muhammad Mosque Number 6 to come from West Baltimore to our markets last year. And we're doing some stuff this year, too where they come into the church kitchen and they teach about navy bean soup. Um, They bring the bean pies and we love the bean pies. So it's also wonderful to see that interfaith connection and seeing the sisters from the mosque and the mothers of the church together in the kitchen learning from one another. It's amazing. Sweet potatoes don't rile people up religiously like doctrine and dogma does. You know, it, it's a level playing field when you're talking about greens, carrots, and tomatoes and all of that stuff. And so I, I think it's really beautiful and powerful a way to do the education piece, the intergenerational piece as well. Before the next question, let me just say one more thing about, you know, um, people's interactions with home-cooked food. Um, a lot of people don't realize that most of our schools these days are not 
equipped to cook food for children either. And you know, that's been part of the challenge with getting locally sourced food into schools as well, is that the cafeterias just don't have the capacity, they don't have the storage, they don't have actual cooking stoves. They can, they're only set up to be able to reheat and microwave things and serve it to kids. So this is, this is where, you know, in the book, near the, in the, in the chapters near the back, um, I get into a little bit about local food policy and the work that food policy councils do. These are some of the st systemic things that happen. You know, these are recent, recent changes that have happened in our schools, but we continue to get these kinds of um, uh, obstacles within our institutions that keep us from having the food we want to have in the places we want to have it. So it behooves us all to like pay attention to those things too and you know get that's another place where people can get involved in just moving local um, governments and, and, and agencies to places where they can support having this kind of food brought in. There's a lot of changes that have to be done about that but but it's, it's us as like the consumers and taxpayers and parents and, and you know, citizens who have to go and kind of push them in those directions. Renee, do you mind, because I so appreciated that section where you, you talked about the food policy councils, mm. and not only did you write about them, but you provided the address, the numbers, the contact information for all the local food policy councils. There might be somebody listening on the podcast who like food policy council is a brand new term. Do you mind unpacking that a little bit? I just sure. want to make sure people know that that is a pathway that everyday regular people can connect with. Right, right. So uh, unfortunately, not enough everyday regular people know about food policy councils. But these are, um, are generally kind of voluntary organizations of um, sometimes food activists in the community and consumers um, and farmers and people from agencies who basically have created a um, citizens council kind of a setup to address systemic issues in their local community so that all the players who need to be talking about these different things can come together um, in kind of a neutral situation and talk about it. Some food policy councils are actually housed by governments. Um, Baltimore actually is one of the leaders in the country in terms of the way that they address food policy. And in fact, Baltimore had one of the first uh, food policy directors that was in local government. And Holly Freistadt is still in that position. She was one of the first food policy czars in the country, and that approach has allowed the city to really bring together all of the players who hold little pieces of what it takes to make food system change. So for instance, things like, um, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, school food or like food and summer programs or things like that, or even just food access within the city. There are pieces of that that have to do with like the transportation department. You know, people, we talk about people are living in food deserts. Well, sometimes that's not only because there's not a grocery store super close, but maybe it's because there's not a bus line that goes to the grocery store that is nearby so that they can get their groceries and actually have a way to get them back home. Um, you know, so there are health department interactions with the way food um, policy is done in schools and things like that. So there are a lot of cross-pollination and cross-sector work that has to be done to change some of the underlying structures um, that would allow more 
more sourcing of regional and, and, and local food. And so food policy councils, some housed within governments, some that are um, run by nonprofits, some that are just completely kind of standalone entities that are made up of people from the community get together to try to address these kinds of things. And they may have different, different focuses. Some of them are really focused on like food equity in their regions. In Prince George's County, our, I live in Prince George's County, Maryland. Ours is actually called the Prince George's County Food Equity Council. Um, some work more on, on um, policy types of issues. Um, some work more on just really being that networker that connects you know, um, producers with grocery stores over food waste or making sure that, you know, leftover food from grocery stores is getting to food banks or homeless shelters. So anyway, as you said, in, 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 the, in Chapter 7 on Food Policy Councils, there is a listing of about 14 food policy councils that exist in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, kind of eastern West Virginia area. And, um, and there are new ones. There are a couple of new ones being started each year. One other thing about Baltimore at Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future is really kind of like the repository of knowledge around food policy councils for the country. So their Food Policy Network's website keeps an updated listing of where food policy councils are all around the country. Okay, you've been waiting to ask a question, so. <laughs> no, that was amazing. Um, um, I'm sorry, we could do this all day. <laughs> I could be here with you. My name's Nevena. I just... Thank you so much. Like, my mind and heart are totally humming right now. That's just really wonderful. Um, a friend of mine has been doing a lot of research on seeds um, and just how I think it's like around 70% of seed varieties are owned by corporations. And um, she's really interested in the fact that, like, seeds being handled and used actually make them more vital and healthy. And mm -hmm. so I'm just really curious, especially from you, Reverend, if, like, churches have thought about being seed banks at all. Um, I know that there are public libraries in California that are seed banks, and it just seems like such a beautiful system. And yeah. Yeah, just curious about, like, what seeds have been like on both of your peripheries. Seed saving is is an active part of the local food community. Um, there are you know groups of individuals who just kind of get together to like swap seeds. And if you go to any of the um, um, sustainable agriculture conferences that take place in the winter when you know the farmers are getting ready for the season and all, there often be seed exchanges and people have like you know their special their heirloom seeds that they've been managing and all. Um, but um, maybe you want to talk about the the the. I, I think you have a fish pepper seed connection. Sure. Uh, soilful. That's Xavier. Yeah. Um, grateful for Soilful, our family down in the D.C. area, and Xavier Brown. And um, he's worked with black farmers to grow a particular fish pepper that's historically popular uh, and has a cultural resonance in this area. And uh, has these farmers working together with these fish peppers and the seeds, giving them seeds to grow fish peppers. And then last year, uh, launched the hot sauce from those peppers, Pippin's Hot Sauce. And so the, the full circle of life moment here is those seeds, which he gave to local farmers in D.C. Uh, and surrounding area, and those peppers that eventually became Pippin Hot Sauce, made their way to Soil to Sanctuary Market, and we sold their hot sauce uh, at our market last year as well. It is, listen, I'm not a major hot sauce guy, but it's the best hot sauce I've ever tasted in my life. And so I'm excited about more hot sauce coming this year from our family at Soilful and Xavier and the wonderful work that they're doing. I'll also say, though, I grabbed my heart 
when you talked about seed banks because um, an organization out of California called the Seed Bank in California, they caught wind of our organization and they wanted to support. And they said, hey, do you guys need some organic seeds? We said, sure, it'd be amazing. I'm thinking that when they send seeds, it's going to be, you know, a couple couple packets of seeds. Like, thank you all so much. I have a little letter already ready. Thank you so much for your seeds. <laughs> a box gets to the church that has like 500 seeds of various varieties. I mean, various, I mean, everything you can think of and stuff I've never heard of in this huge box. And so we are cataloging those seeds now. And then our plan is to work through the churches to teach about seed saving and seed keeping, and then have those seeds work through the generations of the local churches, and so that we don't have to run and get. Mm-hmm. I don't. There's this company. I'm not going to say their name, but <laughs> they sell these seeds, and on the back of the packet it says "not safe for human consumption," and it's like corn and like <laughs> beans and like I'm like, why do you do this? And so, but yeah, I mean, but to your point about this. These large agribusinesses controlling patents on seeds and the like. I think it's a serious issue. I was with Aaliyah Frazier on Monday. We had lunch, and I asked her, what is it that we should be thinking about now, Aaliyah? I really appreciate her genius. And she said, water and seeds. Mm -hmm. She said, given everything going on in the world right now, she said, land is awesome. She said, we got a lot of people talking about land. But when the waters rise and climate change continues to intensify, we're going to have to be thinking more about water and seeds. And so we're grateful to have this now this huge collection of seeds. We'll be cataloging them and looking to spin off a seed bank. Because that's part of what we do as well. Spin, we want to help to nurture the startup of a thing and then help it spin off. So like the Soil to Sanctuary Markets is preparing to spin off and be a separate either a B Corp or co-op or something, and live on its own. We have um, a local currency called the B-Note. Some of y'all remember the B-Note? The B-Note folks came to us and said, Pastor Brown, you're doing such a great job. We've run out of steam on this local currency thing. Can you take it and really make it what it needs to be? And so now we're the owners of the B-Notes, and so we have a local currency people can use at our markets. And at the, right now at the Govins Farmer's Market on York Road, we're going to keep on growing it and have businesses take the local B-Notes as well. But those are the, this, that's the type of way that we're organizing. We want to create, again, like I said, an ecosystem and create as many pathways as possible for people. So your friend who loves seeds, that might be an arm that, you know, your friend wants to connect with. And for somebody else who's really down on local currencies, maybe that's your thing. But again, back to what I was saying, you don't have to have on overalls, have a pitchfork and a big straw hat uh, to be a part of food systems. So in fact, the farmers that I know don't even have on overalls and big, <laughs> big hats and pitchforks. They're, doing their, they're mo- moving stuff out of apps on their phones and stuff now. And it's, the world has changed. But we want to create as many on-ramps as possible for people to get involved in this very important issue. Of course, the easiest way to get involved is just to buy some food from some local farmers or producers. You know, we don't all have to be growing it. If you can do it, more power to you. But, um, you know, they, I have done some gardening, but they grow much better vegetables than I do. So <laughs> we should all stick to our, our areas of expertise. And so I'm, I'm glad to, uh, to leave that to them. Any other questions? 
Well, first of all, I wanted to thank you, Renee, for your book. I've already read it. Um, you've done a lot of legwork. I'm interested in local food. Um, I used to belong to a CSA. This is my first year not belonging to one, so you gave me a lot of good hints. Um, but my question to both of you is just how did you get started with your interest in local food? That, that's what I wanted to know. And, and also, I guess the other question that I had was is with your um, – with your local food challenge, what was the hardest thing for you to acquire or to define? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I got interested um, because I, I like food generally. Um, I had. <laughs> um, I had grown up eating good food, but kind of as I say in the book, you know, my parents were kind of eye roll about local food movement, you know, whatever. As my dad goes out to pick his you know, collards and stuff from the backyard. He's like, I don't need a movement. You know, I've got my local food right here. Um, but I think actually what, what um, really sparked my interest was that I had lived abroad as a, in, in, after I got out of school in my early 20s in countries where people shop on a daily or weekly basis where you still have street markets where people are bringing fresh food and people know about it and, um, you know, um, I was doing a language exercise when I was, I, was, I was in Mexico and then I was in Turkey and I was studying Turkish language and um, there was a language exercise about vocabulary for fruits and vegetables and the, the homework was to, to come in and say what you were going to buy at the, at the farmer's market when you went to shopping. And so, you know, I'm, I'm being a show-off and I had had all my vocabulary. I remembered my, all my words and my pronunciation was great, and I just reeled off this long list of things. When I go to the market, I'm going to get oranges and peaches and apples and grapefruits and, you know, I had like 10 or 12 things. And my Turkish teacher was like, well, but that's ridiculous. And I was like, what? What do you mean? She said, those things don't grow in the same season. And I was like, I had no earthly idea what she was talking about. Because I hadn't grown up knowing anything about the seasonality of food. But it was just like a, a natural ingrained thing in her culture where they grew up seeing things come into the market on their seasons. So that was, a, that was an education I had when I was abroad, when I started to see things come in seasons and realize, wow, this, I thought I didn't actually like peaches, but apparently I had never had one that was actually in season because they were amazing. And so when I came back here... Um, and when I, when I came back to the D.C. area, which I had grown up in, but I'd been around, and I got back and the farmer's market movement was starting and the local food movement was kind of starting. And so I wanted to see, you know, what, what it was like. What could I do? Um, and I was also doing some work with some local restaurants at the time whose chefs were at the vanguard of farm-to-table in the, in the restaurant world, and I was seeing some amazing things that were coming into their kitchens and being served on their tables and, you know, saying, I can't, I wouldn't be able to try these things if I wasn't working for this restaurant, so how do I figure out how to get this stuff at home? There's got to be a way I can get something like this, you know, on my own. And so that's, I think, what kind of put me down the path of, of exploring it and, you know, kind of the challenge that we did and figuring that out. And, and to your question about the hardest thing, it's still the hardest thing, I think, in our region. There are two things, grains, flour type of things for, you know, baking, and, and dried beans. Beans are still hard. And some of those things have to do with our climate here and the difficulty of, of growing those things without, you know, pesticides and things in the region. But there are, there are definitely people are, 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 are making inroads, and there's a, great, there's a great bakery in D.C. now. It's called Selu, 
which is using all locally sourced grains from Maryland and Pennsylvania. And they're making amazing breads and even things like, you know, I went in there one morning and they had a whole wheat almond croissant. I've never had a whole wheat croissant in my life. I was like, that just doesn't even sound right. But <laughs> this thing looked so good and, I, and I, I bought it and it was so good. I, can't, I couldn't even believe how good it was. <laughs> so there's definitely hope for the grain scene. Yeah. How about you? Uh, for me, uh, two levels. One, um, Renee read uh, out of the book was that I wanted to help the people who I'm blessed to pastor and share life with. And noticing that so many of them were hospitalized because of diet-related issues, I wanted to do something. Seminary taught me to pray, give a scripture, give a word of encouragement, don't stay too long, that kind of stuff. But um, it came a point where those visits became so frequent, and I kept on hearing about diet that I said, there's got to be something in addition to the prayer that I could do. And that's where the idea came to try to make a connection to local food. It didn't work out at the local fresh food market that's, as you heard, a couple blocks, literally walking distance from the front door of our church. Um, but it, that frustration served as the fuel to be creative and innovate and see the land that we already owned as something that we could utilize to start growing our own food. I'll say on another level, I really feel like this is, um, there's something deep, there's something beyond, uh, there's something very deep happening on a spiritual plane for me. Uh, while I was born at Sinai Hospital, not, not far, not too far from here in Baltimore, my family roots are in North Carolina and Virginia. In Virginia, there's a little town called Kilmonic in Sunnybank, Virginia, Northumberland County. And then in North Carolina, a little town called Aden, North Carolina, right not far from Greenville. Before my family came north in the Great Migration to uh, find other job opportunities and really also to get away from the racist violence of North Carolina in particular, um, we were sharecroppers and farmers, and my granddaddy was crabbing in Virginia. And the more I do this work, I thought it was just for the reason of helping the people in my congregation there's something else going on where I'm getting put back in touch with our family heritage and history and legacy uh, around farming and food and land. And it's funny that you mentioned, Pastor, about uh, heirs' property and family land because since I was 13, about 12, 13 years old, I've been asking my grandparents to please give me a shot to buy the family land before they would sell it to anybody else. I was a teenager saying that. And wouldn't you know it, after years of asking, Grandma, Grandpa, please give me a shot to buy the family land. If you ever think of selling it, please think about me first. And just this year, Granddad told me, Heber, if you're ready for it, that land is down there waiting for you in Northumberland County, Virginia. And just a couple of months ago, we signed all the paperwork. And now I own the family land, five what? acres in Northumberland County. Yeah. Wow. I mean, <laughs> it's beautiful. So, and so over the Memorial Day weekend, me, my grandparents, and my mom rolled down. And to walk, if I talk about it too long, I'm going to get teary-eyed. <laughs> it's really misty in here. That's what is going on. It's just right. in case it's, it's it happens. From the, it's, it's from the storm. That's what it is. Yeah. Just in case. But to walk that land... My great-granddaddy, who I never met, is buried in that land. My, my great-grandmother is buried in that land. And to walk that land 
was such a deeply spiritual experience. And I'm so grateful that I get to steward that land for the rest of my days. And my plan is, uh, and I took my sons down there, that that land passes to them and the story of that land stays in this family. This is our family land. You stay, don't sell this land. This is not for a quick buck. There's a house for sale right next to the five acres, a three bedroom house. And uh, I got my eye on that house. I want to buy it. And I want to give my grandparents the opportunity to move back down home and live on that land. Uh, they're knocking on 80s and, and in their 80s, but um, they get so excited because of this land. And so that's why, for me, it goes so much deeper. And I'm privileged to be in a position to help other families in our church do that intergenerational transfer, work through the issues, get through the disagreements, and get the legal resources to pass that land from one generation to the next generation as well. And so that's the deep thing for me, that this stuff really goes so far beyond. When I hang up my, my clergy collar, there's some land down south waiting for me. And Baltimore's been a great place for me. It's been challenging on some fronts, but I'm getting up out of here at some point and going back down to that water and sitting on that land, drinking lemonade and waving at every car that goes by. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's great, and congratulations. That, that really is amazing. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably a good place to stop. <laughs> so thank you all very much for having us, and thank you all for coming out. It was great. Thank you so much, Renee, Pastor, for sharing this incredible evening um, and your stories and your work. Thank you all for spending your evening with us. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.